Live from Red Bull Studios, New York. I'm in love with my life. This is Mary H.K. Choi, and this is Hey, Cool Job, a podcast about jobs. Today's guest is Noah Callahan Bever, Chief Content Officer and Editor in Chief of Complex. They recently just sold their company, and we're going to ask him all about it. He's got a very cool job. I'm in love with my life. Hey, Noah. Hello. So, tell me, how long have you been at Complex? Uh, It has been about 11 years, uh, 10 as editor-in-chief. Whoa, that's crazy. And Complex has been around for 14 years, correct? Yes. According to the internet, a very reliable place, you just sold your media company for a reported 100 million metric tons of unobtainium. Can you confirm this figure for me? I can't speak about the financial... uh you know, details of the deal, <laughs> um, but it was definitely all in bologna and cheese sandwiches. Perfect. Um, actually, it has been rumored uh, between the Wall Street Journal and a writer at Gawker that the figure is around $250 million to $350 million. Is this hot or cold? I, I have heard that rumor as well. <laughs> um, cool. So you can confirm that this rumor does exist. I, I can confirm that that was reported by the, the Wall Street <laughs> Journal. Um, I cannot confirm that it was on Gawker, though. Ooh, do you not read Gawker? Is that like a hate thing? No, 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 okay. no. I just I actually didn't see this. Story. I'm just willing to stir any pot today. Um, so it's safe to say that you owned a percentage of the company, though, correct? I, I was a shareholder, yes. Yes. Um, So really, really important question. And I've been getting this question through um, my fans on Twitter and your fans on Twitter. Um, What kind of gold-plated toilet seat are you getting? It's not going to be plated. Oh, oh, shit. (laughs) Come on. Nicely done. Um, So did you own a percentage of it going into it or was it something you earned over the years? No. um, You know, I I went in as a at-will employee in 2005 and I was promoted to editor-in-chief the following year. And... um, a few years after that, Complex was spun off of Mark Echo Enterprises um, and acquired by some private equity uh, people. And during the tenure of their ownership, um, I was granted some options. So this is something that you had to work towards for a number of years? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Did that percentage grow as your success and your tenure increased? Yeah, well, you know, generally speaking with options, you are granted uh, a an amount and then they vest over time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of like a retention Got uh, it. strategy. So I want to ask you, it's so funny because like you hear about companies getting bought and sold all the time. But when it happens to someone, you know, it's just like super, super exciting. And it's also super vivid. The night before the company was officially sold, how did you feel? I did not sleep, to be totally honest. How many um, nights did you not sleep for in a row? Uh, I, you know, the last month has been incredibly stressful. You work incredibly hard for this, uh, I would say exit, but it's it's not really an exit, mm-hmm. um, to be honest, for this uh, Momentous event. occasion. Yes. Yeah, totally. And there are so many things along the way that can derail it. Um, and really, until the ink is dry... Um, you kind of have to just knock on wood and hope that... um, Everything goes as planned? Yeah. So when you announced it, had the wire already hit? We are actually um, currently waiting for federal regulators to approve the deal. So um, everything is pending in terms of the transfer of control. How often are you refreshing your bank tab? I'm still waiting. We... we (laughs) 
until the FTC uh, gives the thumbs up. Um, God, what's their problem? Yeah, no, seriously. Um, no, I mean, I, we are expecting that should happen imminently. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's one of those things where you have to file um, with them. And as soon as you do that, that's a public record. Oh, so that's so you when ha- you make the announcement. You make the announcement. That's not necessarily when the wires hit. Yes. Okay, so it's not about you being indiscreet. It's about it being public anyway. Yes, okay, exactly. Got it. So, I mean, what is actually the process of, like, when you sell your company or something? Do they start digging in your, like, reports like crazy? It is, like, a background check where you're about to be a part of the CIA or something? Like, how did, like, bean counters, like, descend upon the building? Like, what is that process like? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a a diligence that has to happen. The thing is, ours was somewhat different because... um, we had around, we'd raised around with Hearst in uh, September or August of last year. Right. And then this deal was with Hearst uh, Verizon. Verizon. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the diligence and all that kind of stuff had start, or at least, I don't, uh, I'm sure that they did their own separate diligence. But, but like Hearst can vouch, yes, sort of. They, right. they went into it having kicked the tires pretty thoroughly, um, <laughs> you know, six months ago. Right. Kicked the bejesus out of the tires. Um, when it was announced, were your parents like, whoa, this obsession with rap music really paid off finally? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, it, it, my dad was very, very excited, um, as was my mom. I still haven't really sat and discussed the details of it with her. Right, um, because Killer Callahan. Yeah, that's going to be a long Noah's conversation. Noah's mom is really intense, and she's very good with figures, so a lot of those questions I can imagine being very vigorous. Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, my dad was, was super excited and it definitely made me feel much better about dropping out of college. Yeah, that's a follow-up question. Do you have any regrets about that? No. Um, no kidding, right? Now that you're on this side of <laughs> Yes, reality. exactly. Uh, ha- having sold the company, I feel great. Yeah. Um, it was definitely the best decision ever. Um, I still do have random nightmares about it. Like though. anxiety dreams? Yeah, I, I have About like, college? Showing up you know, the finals dream. Like mm-hmm. I have that. Well, that actually did happen to me at NYU where um, I missed a final because I just didn't know where it was. Because rap, 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 rap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then I ended up having to take the final the next semester without having... What year was this? I don't know, like, like what grade, I guess? Oh, sophomore year. Okay. What grade did you get up to, junior? Uh, I dropped out halfway through my sophomore year but i had enough credits from ap's to so i was technically a junior okay got it i love that you want credit for being a technical junior having dropped out yes <laughs> very nice so complex was acquired by hearst and verizon like you said does it mean that you get to go to hearst castle whenever you want and have like free cell phone still trying to figure that really? out really yes i would definitely I, have like negotiated that from jump street i'm kidding <laughs> well i gotta figure out some way for them to get new york one onto fios that's that the real Yes, because I know your loyalties. I, I am very loyal to New York One, but, yeah. you know, th- I, I'm, I'm willing to reevaluate that um, <laughs> wow. given my new uh, situation. Yes, exactly. All right. So I know that, you know, I was listening to your um, podcast with Elliot Wilson and BDOT over at Rap Radar. They're friends. Um, and I know that getting the complex magazine cover is still like a big thing and that you get so much mileage out of it because you have all this video and all the photography and all the quotes. But I guess why have a magazine anymore? I mean, the magazine really exists uh, as a marketing tool for us at this point, Mm -hmm. um, both for celebrity talent, but also for buyers. Um, You know, it's, it is a 
beautiful uh, yeah. item and keepsake. And it really does encapsulate exactly what we are about as an entire media company. So, you know, whether it's something that can live on a celebrity's coffee table or on a ad buyer's um, desk, mm -hmm. um, there's inherent value in that. So there's that sort of tactile time capsule aspect to it. Absolutely. Yeah. So... You know, I remember in that same conversation when you were talking to Elliot, um, you guys were talking about how L cockblocked you by snaking Nas for a, a an A-B split with Jeezy, and that was yes. your first cover, and that was a big deal. And, you know, obviously you were yelling at Gabe Tesoriero and all this stuff. And, you know, the interesting thing to me about that story is you were about to put Nas, Jeremy Piven, and Justin Timberlake on the cover. And that, to me, speaks to, like how different Complex was when you were coming on versus what it's become. Talk to me a little bit about what it was like back then. Well, I mean, you know, I think in general, one of the things that we have really benefited from is that the entire popular culture has really shifted in our direction. In your favor. Yes. And, and you think about the things that we were championing, whether it's sneaker culture or Kanye West or Kim Kardashian. Or even saying that Lil Wayne being a big deal was like yes. a big deal. Like this was an, a proclamation. And, and yeah, all of these things have sort of moved in our direction. And I think that, you know, that has been as much as I would like to take credit for um, stewarding the ship, um, being on top of this incredible sort of swell, mm. uh, you know, has, has benefited us greatly. So, you know, you're very gracious and you always are about um, giving credit where it's due and, and actually not t hogging all the credit, I suppose. But And no, uh, no disrespect to the brand and not to be backhanded, but when you came on, this magazine did not have a voice. No. Well, you know, I mean, the thing with, with Complex was that it had been born as sort of, I think Mark Echo looked at it like, it, it, when I've talked to him, He's, he says that basically he looked at the marketplace and was frustrated because when he was doing his ad buying for Echo, mm -hmm. he was having to buy in like six different magazines in order to hit his target demo. Sure. I mean, because also we're, we're talking about the heyday of like white laddish magazines that came from, you know, a British publisher. This is like Maxim, FHM, well, Cargo. And he had to put money in GQ, in Vibe, in Big Brother. Um, and several other, you know, even like an EW right. in order to hit all of the sort of corners of what he thought of was his dem. And it struck him, why is there not one central yeah, place for this? Because I, I think the thing that is just unbelievably baffling about that is that it all sort of comes under the purview of youth culture. And yes. the fact that no one sort of like galvanized that is amazing to me. Well, it, and the thing is, I think, in 2002, the idea of multicultural youth culture as a, not only uh, a real thing, but as the future of all things. Right. Something that not a lot of people foresaw. Um, but I mean, this is a time where, like, wearing tight jeans was like a scandal, you know? Yeah, I mean, but to, to answer your original question, I think that the issue was that when Complex was born, Mark had the idea and the aesthetic, um, mm. but... Publishing was not a core competency of the Echo corporate structure. Sure. Um, and so they went through a few editors in the process, um, I think, trying to figure out exactly what, you know, Complex could be. And I think, you know, you look at the first iteration under Bed White, um, it was incredibly energetic and a little all over the place. Yeah, it was a little scattershot. You had a lot of split covers where it's like three dudes from very different industries on the same cover. Yeah. 
And then Jimmy Jelnick, I think, really focused it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, Jimmy's sort of point of view on the world is not as urban. It's not as part of... he comes from traditional white lad magazines. Yes. And so he, he, I think, gave the magazine real structure and real form, Mm -hmm. um, but wasn't exactly like having his finger on on the pulse of what this audience wanted. And, And so I think when they settled on me finally... I like Echo himself, like I came directly out of this culture. Right. And in many ways, Complex was the magazine that I had always wished had existed. Sure. So what were some of the challenges of making, of honing that voice? I mean, you know, as a writer, uh, it's the, the challenge is figuring out how to take what is innately like how I speak mm. and get six or seven other people to sort of vibrate on that frequency. Yes. Um, and, you know, fortunately, that original staff that I put together with Peter Rubin and Jack and Justin um, and Donnie and Andrew, all of them, we were all best friends. We all hung out all the time after work. It was pretty easy for us to all get on the same page as far as, you know, our vernacular and our jokes and all that kind of stuff. And also, these are all people that come from magazine backgrounds. I mean... Or, and went on to work at different magazines. Peter Rubin is at Wired. Um, Justin, I think, is writing a book or a novel. And Donnie's doing a whole bunch of other things. But, you know, you knew Donnie from Vibe. You knew Andrew Simon from Vibe. You worked with Justin Monroe um, at Mass Appeal when you were the editor-in-chief there. So, yeah, I mean, you and you all similarly shared very interesting viewpoints when it came to the culture and, like, different things that you were into. Um, let's talk about your personal trajectory a bit. Where did you grow up? I grew up in lower Manhattan. Um, okay. I went to elementary school at St. Luke's over on Hudson street. Um, and you went to high school in Brooklyn. I went to high school in Brooklyn at Berkeley Carroll in uh, park slope. Yeah. So what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, I had wanted to be a comic book illustrator for most of my childhood. Right. Um, that was sort of the dream. Um, and then, you know, I, I had contemplated, uh, applying to art school um, for college and my mom kind of shut drew, that the fuck down yeah she drew a line <laughs> in the sand and was just like I'm not gonna pay for that right um, and I didn't necessarily feel that passionately about it that I was ready to just fight fight and take out mad loans in order to do well, it and so also to give you to give everyone a little bit of background your mom comes from a finance background she's like a Wall Street chick yeah so yeah my mom was a bond trader in the 80s and and so she believes very uh, <laughs> ardently about math <laughs> and the yeah. uh, value of math. Right. So she was basically like, look, if you can get into NYU, why don't you go there and you can take art classes if you want. Right. And of course, all art classes got offered at 9 a.m. on Friday. So I never took an art class. Right. It just kind of thins the herd. <laughs> yes. So, you know, we talked a little bit about college and how it doesn't necessarily sort of um, come into your personal successes, but do you think college now is necessary? Uh, I mean, I think it is probably very useful to some people uh, for socialization and right. maturity. <laughs> um, as a, a, an exercise in learning, I don't really think so. Do you think that's like a quintessentially New York attitude? Because like there is so much life experience to be had and immediately. Uh, no, I mean, it, my feeling is just that, frankly, 
most colleges aren't, they're not trade schools. So right. what you're learning there is... Debt. <laughs> it's, it's probably very interesting and probably not very applicable to any specific... Uh, vocation. Vocation, yeah. yeah, exactly. But I do think people learn a lot about themselves and about other people during those years. So I wouldn't write it off entirely. Mm -hmm. Basically, just go until sophomore year, get some credits until you're a junior and then drop out. Yeah, I mean, well, look, my, my situation was very unique in, in so much as I actually started on my professional career while I was still a senior in high school. So, right, because people lied for you. Yes. You know, so I, I, as, as a 17-year-old, I was working at Ego Trip and then at, at Vibe when I turned, you know, right around my 18th birthday. Um, so I went into NYU kind of being like, what is the point of all yeah, this? Yeah, the shrug emoji. Like, Yeah, it's like, yeah. I'm, I'm already a published writer. <laughs> You're insufferable. <laughs> I don't... No, I mean, you know, I, the thing was, so then I ended up being like, well, I, I, I don't want to take journalism classes. Cause right, because that feels ass backwards. Well, I, I never had any aspirations to be like a hard news, mm. you know, journalist, which I respect that there is a lot that you can learn Absolutely. Um, in that discipline, but that was never of interest to me. And... So then I ended up just taking history classes because I thought, you know, history is sort of broadly applicable to all things, writing yeah, and totally. things. Yes, an understanding of people and places and, you know. Nouns and verbs. So you got an internship with Ego Trip when you were 17. Yes. Um, tell the cheap seats what Ego Trip is. So Ego Trip was a hip hop and rock zine. Um, their tagline was the arrogant voice of musical truth. Um I used to buy it at Fat Beats um, over when it was down on 9th Street, actually. Wow. Um, and it was a black and white. Very zany. Very zany. Very sort of, you know, crude art direction. But it, <laughs> Brent Rollins. No, no. Pri prior to Brent Rollins. <laughs> okay. Brent Rollins and I started together, actually. Okay, fair enough. Brent um, Rollins is currently the creative, creative director, director of Complex. <laughs> um, yes. I'm, Visionary. I'm blessed to work with Brent yeah. now almost like 18 years later, which is crazy. Um, but yeah. The thing was, was it made me laugh out loud. Yeah, like every so funny. Issue of of Ego Trip was just so packed with just dense jokes and so much knowledge. Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about voice, I would definitely say that you cut your teeth there. Yes, and well, that was the thing is, you know. Ego Trip was sort of like a hip-hop national lampoons in, in a lot of ways. and Now you're just talking about really old things that nobody's heard of. <laughs> Your whole millennial audience <laughs> just, like, turned the computer off. All seven of them. Closed tab. No, I mean, I know exactly what you mean. Where You know, it's almost like it's just smarter and funnier than it needs to be. And if you're on that level, there's just nothing more rewarding. No, and, and exactly. The... the the magazine was just so meticulously put together mm -hmm. and there was such an attention to the detail of every line of copy. Um, I was super attracted to that. Um, and yeah, so I started interning there uh, during, I actually interviewed on Valentine's Day 1997 and started the following week. You have a photographic memory, right? I do, although as I've gotten older, current stuff gets fuzzy. Really? It's, That's frightening. Because you are the, the, the holder of the boulder when it comes to a lot of pieces of information in history. I still think it's all up there. I just need like <laughs> mnemonic you devices, know, devices in yeah. order to trigger it. Well, and also I feel like it, it, we definitely have to say that Ego Trip is responsible for the big book of rap lists, yes. which is like internet pre-internet, mm -hmm. and also the big book of racism. And I think the rap list thing is interesting because you do do a lot of lists and like... You know, you, you create a lot of strife. 
yes. online as a result of these lists. People love lists. <laughs> if there's true. anything that I have learned in this game, honestly, between being at, at Ego Trip and then going to work at MTV where I wrote uh, more than several countdown shows. Yes. Because that was the heyday of the countdown show, yes. true. It is uh, just such a simple narrative device. And at the end of the day, people love to have their taste either confirmed or disputed. Yep. It is a very satisfying feeling to either be like, oh, I'm smart because they agree with me. Or these people are professionals and they don't know shit. Yeah, totally. It's feed the trolls and pat them on the back. Um, so you worked at Vibe afterwards. And the funny thing is you met Eminem when you were still an NYU college student. Is that correct? Yes. Did he or did he not have brown hair at the time? He did have brown oh, hair. It's crazy. Did you know from the moment you, you met him that he was going to be special? Yes. I, he was, it was very interesting. So like I flew out to Burbank. This was right after my 19th birthday. This is like the end of May, 98. How old was he then? He was probably 24. Oh, so he's a baby. You're both babies. Yes. And uh, I was actually with Max Glazer. Um, Amazing. Our common friend. Yes. Um, and Max picked me up at LAX and we drove out to Burbank and pulled up to uh, a little strip mall. Um, and in the back, him and Royce were in like a Cadillac listening to mixes of the Mushroom Song and... Uh, how the world turns or whatever okay. as the world turns. And what were you thinking? And then I was immediately struck. I had been like an underground rap nerd. Um, and most of the underground rap nerds, particularly the uh, Caucasian ones, um, <laughs> are very nerdy about their interest in music. Sure. And they want to talk about music in a very sort Myopic of... Myopic and like pedantic manner. Yes. Um, and all about the samples and all this stuff. And Eminem was not that. He right. had a incredibly thick Detroit accent. And he was much more like what one would think of as a stereotypical rapper right. than um here's like a he's sort like, of like a, a weird savant though he uh, he absolutely is what was so interesting was to see him um and to talk about music with him um he's sort of obtuse mm. and then to see him get behind a a microphone and be able to articulate an idea in like a such a linear mm. and perfect way it's it's really interesting to see how someone's brain can function switches yeah no totally i think in some of the sort of early mixtapes where people are just like paul rosenberg his manager is just giving him words and he's just rapping along so you know it's a freestyle for sure yeah like those moments are just moments of brilliance that are so rare um and you spent how many days with him i think i was there for four nights does that level of access make you cry thinking about what we're working with these days uh, yeah, I mean, yes and no. You know, I I have uh, some stories coming in the not too distant future that where I've been able to spend some comparable amounts of time with people. But um, but is that a situation where it's because of your reputation and that relationship that you get uh, yeah. to spend? I mean, because it's not just like a a nineteen year old kid. No, I mean, from college. What was the really the craziest part about this mm -hmm. is that. I was writing a 250 word story and they, and blaze footed the bill for me to stay for five nights or four nights. And subsequently what happened to blaze? Well, they went out of business. <laughs> not, not too long after that. Right. Um, Fair. But yeah, they, they had me up in, in a holiday Inn and max in a Mondrian. And he also had like a 
250 word one pager. Incredible. Ritmatic or somebody like that. So question, did you just basically talk about an impending Kanye feature? No, 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 okay. no, 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 no. <laughs> I just wanted to know who exactly you got to spend all this time and energy with. I don't, I, you know, everyone will see in the not too distant future. Fair. Um, do you still have photos of Eminem from back then? I do. You that, do? Because wh- he used to call your dorm room and talk to your girlfriend at the time on the phone. <laughs> yes. It, well, that, that was the weirdest thing was that, like, I instantly knew that what I was experiencing was completely unique and special and bigger than anything that I had, you know, at that point I hadn't done that many stories, maybe uh, less than a half dozen, but I interviewed a handful of people and I was, I was sort of, you know, I had done an MF Doom interview in Long Beach and I interviewed Lord Finesse, a, a, a number of different people. And somehow just that first night, you the, just knew the energy around M and the music and seeing all of the Interscope people that were hanging out. The it, machine, you saw the machine. It was like, this is going to happen and it's going to be bigger than in anything that I've ever been around. Um, and so I bought a disposable camera um, when I was at the hotel uh, the first night and I took pictures. It was the only time in my career I've ever taken pictures. Yeah, because you don't stand out and you're, oh, the etymology of Stan. Yes. But no, you don't, you're not fanish and you're not that person ever but no you, it's you something this moment yeah just felt like this has to be documented and, yeah. and i need to take advantage of th- this time um have you felt that energy again since definitely with kanye i remember kanye because you were a huge champion of kanye back when he was still sort of shopping beats and stuff yeah i mean i would say you know being around kanye i think we were introduced um about two months before the Blueprint 2 came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think as a rapper, his uh, style was fairly crude still at that yeah, point. his delivery was a little... But you could just tell that he had, like, something... Again, this was one where you go into it expecting... Um, I'm, I'm expecting, like, a rap nerd who's going to want to talk to me about samples and really get into like the nitty gritty of music. he just music. wants to get in your face and start rapping, right? He <laughs> just, that his, like, he just, no, he wanted to talk about his sneakers. Like all, <laughs> all he wanted to talk about was that he was wearing Adidas and that he was the reason that certain other big rappers started wearing Adidas and that they were getting a lot of shine for wearing these Adidas and he felt like the credit really should go to him, et cetera, et cetera. Although Adidas and rap have a long and storied history that predated that, by- that, that is a fair <laughs> observation. But again, that was just like the, the Eminem thing where I was like, whoa, this is That's, totally yeah. not the person that I was expecting. But I would say this, like M, both of them have a certain star quality where they completely command a room, um, yeah. which is unlike, and I, I can't really quantify what that thing is, but... I know what you mean. I was in the green room when Justin Bieber was doing the Wendy Williams show, like long before Ellen, long before all of that. And I was just like, oh, yeah, this is a thing. Like you can see when the algorithm is locking into place and it's fairly undeniable. I feel like it's like when you go to high school and people know who who's cool. And it's just this weird feral animal thing that we all understand. And you can see when you're witnessing fame, even though it doesn't exist in that person yet or or even though the world hasn't caught up yet. Um, Did you watch Lemonade? I did. Do you think Beyonce is ever going to grant an interview ever again? I wouldn't if I were her. <laughs> um, I, Dear Beyonce. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, what could she possibly get out of sharing more than that? 
Yeah. Did you, do you think it really is Rachel Roy that Jay Chidon Bay with? I have no idea. Okay. Do you love that people are confusing Rachel Ray and Rachel Roy on Twitter? Because that's like my favorite thing of I recent do, I do love that. And I'm looking forward to, I don't know if you remember Dart's very good friend, Lauren Noel, but she's Rachel Ray's publicist. Oh, yes. So that's I've been, right. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with her about exactly what that was like. <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I was thinking about Beyonce and Solange and when she kicked him in the elevator and, you know, that was a rumor that it was also Rachel Roy that she was kicking him in the elevator for. Um, Speaking of elevators, did you once get stuck in an elevator with some rap legends? Yes, I, I was stuck in an elevator with Eminem and Royce the Five Nine. Um, this was about three months after um, I had gone to Burbank and spent a week with them. Uh, they were on tour for the Lyricist Lounge tour, and they performed at the Tunnel. And uh, I met up with them there, and Paul, uh, M's manager... Um, asked if I would um, show Marshall around uh, <laughs> the city a little bit because he needed to, I think, spend some quality time with his then uh, lady friend. Right. Um, so I ended up spending a, like a week kind of running around the city with M, um, during which time he recorded the Bad Meets Evil record mm-hmm. with John Schechter. Um, and also um, in the elevator on the I think it's the 47th Street Doubletree. Okay, um, this is where your memory kicks in. Go in, on. in Times Square. Yeah, we were like, it was like midnight and we were leaving the the uh, hotel to go get some McDonald's. And um, on the way down the elevator, um, basically Eminem just asks if me and Scam play corners in New York. And both me and Scam look at him like we have no idea. And M throws himself, I think M and Royce both throw themselves into me and Scam and the entire elevator goes swinging and bounces off the wall, I guess, in the shaft. Uh, and You get stuck in an we elevator. We get stuck in the elevator for, I don't know, maybe like three hours. You were stuck in an elevator with M and M for three hours. Yes. Well, and so what's really funny and a, is... a lot of other people. <laughs> no, no, no. So it's it's the four of us. Yeah. No, there are no uh, norms in the elevator, <laughs> just rap weirdos. And... The hilarious part is, so we start talking and like, I don't, you know, everyone's talking about personal stuff, dudes start talking about women, and at some point, it becomes clear that the elevator operator has been listening to our entire conversation, and she is like, God, I would hate to be that woman. Oh my God. But she like, until that, that moment. she's not helping, she's just listening to yes, you. Yes, we had just been like talking like no one was there yeah. and then this voice comes on and is like whoa hey now oh my god that's amazing um so we talked about how elliot snaked your nas cover do you remember that you tried to snake my first cover as the editor-in-chief of misbehave by cock blocking my nelly Furtado? i did not do that <laughs> no I, you didn't i but I, it was in the it was a thing that m- maybe was gonna happen at a brief moment i was uh enthusiastically trying to give nelly Furtado a cover right not to prevent Nelly Furtado from doing your cover. It just happened to happen at around the same time. Yeah, well... <laughs> things happen. Know, things, things you do weren't happen. Gonna, yeah, you weren't going to have her do an exclusive or anything no. like that. Okay, fair. So, talking about Complex, it's going to sort of become a video-focused media company. What does that actually mean? Because well, Verizon has this product and blah, blah, blah. Like, what? what is all the yeah, details? Well, I mean, 
you know, Complex will continue to be the profitable media company that it is. Um, I love you that you said profitable. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I say that to say, like, it, we are pivoting, but we are not, like, throwing the baby out with the bathwater right. to use a rich A-ism. Mm-hmm. Um, rich A is the publisher of yes, Complex. and the CEO. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, I, you know, we are not abandoning our network business, we're not abandoning our text business, um, our branded content business, or anything else in, you know, our pursuit of right. expanding video. It's just that that happens to be the place where we have the most opportunity mm-hmm. uh, to grow the revenue. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that Verizon obviously has um, a, you know, their uh, Go90 platform, right. which they are actively trying to find... Um, Partners. Partners and high quality premium content. For. Is this kind of like Snapchat Discover, like how BuzzFeed and Cosmo get like a little circle on the little page thing? Uh, not quite. Okay. I, basically, Go90 is, I, I, the closest I, I would say to describe it is sort of like somewhere between Netflix and YouTube. Okay. Um, and it is an app that can be installed and downloaded on any type of phone. I think it may come standard in Verizon phones. Um, but is it like YouTube in the sense that you, you like transmit yourself as well? Like, no, that's okay. the difference is that obviously you, it's only premium p- publishers. Okay. Got um, it. but, uh, it is more, when I say the YouTube, it's more because they are interested in a lot of short form. Cause yeah, they realize the that people, length. Mm-hmm. It, it is right now only a mobile app. Okay. Um, there's not a desktop iteration. So they are looking for premium content in that two to 12 minute range, mm-hmm. um, as well as, I guess, potentially bigger, longer form yeah. things. So, which is great because that's already kind of your sweet spot in terms of what you've already done. So as you guys grow, how do you avoid the Buzzfeed problem that they're experiencing where, you know, the latest thing with 27 questions black people have for black people, where the editorial people didn't want to claim ownership for what the video people were doing. And it felt sort of fractured and a little church and state, like how do you pivot all your editorial people to begin doing video or thinking about that as an organic part of the editorial output and process? Yeah. I mean, uh, we have grown the content team from, I mean, when you worked at complex, we were what? Full disclosure. I worked at complex. Yes. Uh, and that was what in 2010. Yeah, I think so. And I was there for a y- less than a year because I'm really good at working inside buildings with meetings. Um, and my job then was to spearhead the editorial for the the fashion stuff. But and I, that was a really tiny how, team. How big? We were like 25 then. Yeah, we were 25. We were still in the Flatiron District in that building where um, that classical movie Big oh, was yes, shot. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, that was like you could still holler at anyone who you were working with because it was such a tight knit squad of people. But yes, I mean, since, you know, we've gone from that to now almost 150 people Mm -hmm. um, in the content team. And yeah, it does coordination and communication are incredibly important because you have to keep everybody uh, aligned. Um, But I would say that video is a part of um, the challenge, but it isn't that dissimilar to the challenges we face with our owned and operated strategy with the other brands we've launched or branded content. Yeah. And also you've been able to pivot pretty successfully throughout. I mean, let's not forget you started from being a magazine and you were like, Hey, guess what? The, this, this here internet thing seems to be here to stay. And so you guys 
all pivoted and began doing a lot of aggressive content there. And similarly, when video became a thing a couple of years ago, the same people just started making more product. I mean, yeah, and, and that's the thing. I, I think that at the end of the day, um, the text is sort of the heart of the brand identity. Um, and the opinions. Yes, and, mm-hmm. and I think that, you know, that's where the voice really comes from. Right. So everything else is sort of interpreting that voice. And, and I look at it like the text machine is really sort of the coal that mm-hmm. is the fueling taste, yeah. the fire and keeping the engine <laughs> Yeah, how uh, long are you going to like, go with yeah, this metaphor? <laughs> this I don't know. I, I lost it somewhere. But no, but, you know, really it's like in, in an ideal world, mm. the text we actually would be optioning our own text IP sure. for these video projects. And, so you it, know, it kind of doesn't matter what shape the story takes. The whole point is that the story is the story. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like an interesting one that is happening right now is um, Cal uh, wrote a profile on Rob Liefeld uh, that was oh, timed yeah. to the Deadpool, Deadpool. movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that feature was so well-received that we then started working on a um, documentary feature on Rob Liefeld as well. Whoa. Well, we, we've taken the magnum opus. Uh, Is it finished yet? No. But we've, we've interviewed Rob and maybe a handful of other people. Have you talked to any writers of other Deadpool properties? Maybe people like me who wrote Deadpool, maybe <laughs> Deadpool number one. <laughs> that could happen. Yeah, maybe maybe mine I'm could sure happen. You, I'm sure you have interesting insights on Rob yeah. having never met him. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, so I have a question. This might be a little bit dorky, but complex media has different flavors of state sites. Like you have the offshoots that are really, that are obviously complex, like complex style or news, but what about sites like pigeons and planes and first we feast? Like what happens to them? They continue to thrive. Um, I honestly think that this off- offers them the biggest opportunity for growth. Right. Um, you know, because the, there's now the potential for them to really become almost a peer with complex. Um, so they can level up. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And what about things like misinfo site? Because that is a part of the complex family, but... So the, the complex media network as a digital ad network is still um, going strong okay. and an important, you know, part of our business and our revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that we are going to be expanding um, with new partners, oh, okay. but we are maintaining all of our current so partners. And all the bastards need to get in on the ground floor is what you're saying. Well, you know, we, we have, we have, I think over a hundred sites in the network right now. Wow. So. That's crazy. So what is like, I know you said that you've got a certain number of people within the building creating content. Like how many jobs are we talking with? Like the, the family it's, uh, I think the entire company is around 350. Jesus. How many meetings does that make for you? Oh God! It's so many, so many <laughs> meetings. So many how many meetings. emails do you get? I I, I don't know, but there's twelve thousand that I haven't read in my oh, inbox right now. So you have the dots in between the numbers. Yes. on your little mailbox. That's frightening. Um, do have you experienced any shade, Schadenfreude, or hate since the acquisition? Um. Yeah. I mean, you have really who? I mean, I what? I, <laughs> so mad no i mean it, i i think that there has definitely been and honestly not people that i know right but you search because i feel like people you know full disclosure again it's like you and i've been friends for like fucking 13 years or something it's like i remember what 11 years of being at the same company well, looks like that's a very fucking long time yes there's that and then there's also i think there's a lot of people who only know of complex as the dominant 
media company true, that it has true. been. And you it, guys were an underdog for a very, yes, very long time. There's, there's very little recollection. That blows my mind, actually. So the, We were in fourth place when I joined the team. No, like, I remember. We had a conversation, and you were like, should I leave Vibe? Yes. You know, that was like a very tough decision because totally. Vibe seemed like it would be there it was forever. It a blue chips company. Yep. And complex was still seemed very very shaky and well and everybody called it a catalog yes yeah um and yeah i mean i remember talking to uh my former editor-in-chief at, at at vibe and she was very uh supportive of my decision mm-hmm. but also was quick to be like i don't I've know sat in meetings with some of these people and da, 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 da. you know yeah. I, Echo, it's a clothing company. They're getting into publishing. You don't know how long this is going to be around. I mean, let's clarify that right now. A lot of people thought this was a Mark Echo vanity project. No, and and for a little bit it was, and Mm -hmm. it ended up being quite a robust and real business. So, and I think that part of the reason why it has succeeded is you sort of, you are an editorial person. You're a writer, first and foremost, and then you had to sort of pivot and become like a serious hardcore numbers guy. I know that for a long time, your life was all Excel spreadsheets and like forecasts and things like that. Was that challenging for you? Did you feel like you were sacrificing the sort of storytelling editorial part of your brain to sort of master that part of the business? No, because my mom made me learn math. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, right, right. No, I mean, you know... Well, I, did you surprise yourself? I, I Yes, honestly, because for... Uh, six or seven years of my career, um, I was completely doing, yes, editorial and writing-based things, Mm -hmm. art-based things. Did you have to teach yourself to give a shit about the numbers? No, no. This is the thing. Like, even when I worked in, for Dante Ross, I was obsessed with- You were working at Stimulated. At Stimulated Mm -hmm. Records, um, part of Loud. Um, I was obsessed with Billboard, and me and Dart would talk about SoundScan and talk about... Right, uh, so that you had your chart beat before. <laughs> yes. And then when I got to Vibe, it mm. was funny. Um, the ME, uh, Andrea Rosengarten... The managing editor. ...had in her office all of the covers on the wall with the actual sell-throughs, sell-throughs yeah. on Post-its. And no one really seemed to give a shit about that except for her, Mimi, the editor-in-chief, and me. And I was obsessively interested with, like, what was driving these sales. Right. Um, and even when I got to, to Complex and started with the magazine, I would constantly be beating down um, Rich Antonello's door to try to get all the sales figures. And yeah. And it's, so, it's funny to me because, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who are used to um, the internet and the metrics and even, like, follower counts and things like that and these, like, sort of indicators of engagement. And they're like... Of course you care about sell-throughs, but a lot of the time, editorial people thought it was very church and state. Like, the ad people are over there, the art people are over there, and, like, your sell-throughs and your numbers are kind of someone else's problem. It's just about how, you know, how, like, epic the cover story is, or what the get is, or the grail of the artist, or whatever. It wasn't about how well it did. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember being frustrated at Vibe because I would deal with coworkers who... Often we're like, yeah, you know, you come in, you win some, you lose some. And so obviously when the entire magazine industry fell into the ocean in 2008, (laughs) people were like, hmm. Yes. So I I say that I I was very well positioned and well prepared um, Mm. for that new style of thinking about content. Also, you're pretty competitive. Yes, I'm quietly competitive. Right. This is what we've established. No, you're, (laughs) you are very, very competitive and 
You know, I, I think having worked, um, I was, I used to work at XXL with Elliot Wilson, who is also a person who very much cared about sell-throughs and what affected those numbers. And, you know, I do think there is something to be said for the people who are able to sort of utilize both sides of their brains and very much marry the two hemispheres that I think are doing well now. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I definitely, I, and I think that kind of thinking has been why we've been successful on YouTube, for mm-hmm, example. Sure. You know, we floundered in our video strategy for about a year um, until it struck me that we should just do on YouTube what is working on the site, which was news. Mm-hmm. And then after doing some quick research, it was clear that there was no news product that was speaking to the topics that we were covering. So right, I thought, right. this will probably play well with SEO. Mm-hmm. And we launched with Jinx in uh, December of 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, a year later, we were doing 5 million views a month on the platform. And, and then you started doing real, like, real reporting and going on the ground and yes. competing with, yeah. Yeah, we, we we sent Jinx to Ferguson. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was like our, our first real foray into hard news. Yeah. And, it, and it was unbelievable to see the reaction that he got from people there. Right. Um, that was kind of a real watershed moment for the brand because clear, like, this thing, him doing these green screen videos is actually connecting to them. They know who he is. And him being there now really means something. Right, a familiar face that they feel an association with. Because a lot of the time, I think even, you know, and this has changed a lot in our lifetime with Vice and pe- people like this, but like the news felt like it was being reported by other people. Like yes. weird white grownups or like Asian chicks with way too much makeup on. <laughs> like, this was like who was telling you the news. And this was like a familiar face and someone that a lot of people felt that they could be friends with reporting the news. And that's a very different level of engagement. Yeah. I mean, well that, and that was kind of, that's the um, imperfect science behind complex news was always, I wanted I, every anchor that we found, I've wanted to find just like the person who would probably be the most charismatic person in your high school. Right. I don't want them to look like actors. I don't want, they need to be able to write their own scripts. They mm-hmm. need to know, what is going on in our culture because it's what matters to them. It's actually really interesting to me because I feel like a couple of different jobs that you've done over the years have sort of come together to put you in a good position for everything that's going on with technology. I mean, your MTV background and even just like writing scripts and things like that make you very well suited to understand what sort of tidbits of information and what sort of nuggets will hit and what won't. And similarly, it's like, I just feel like it's kind of a great Voltron moment, like your mom's math thing sort of coming into play and like your father's a video game designer. And so Mm -hmm. there's different sort of tactical ways that he thinks that's coming into play. I have a question. Do you think there's any point in this day and age to aspire to be an EIC? I I don't think people really aspire to be anything other than their own personal brand (laughs) anymore. Um, What does that mean? Is that the worst thing or the best thing? I I mean... I don't know. It's weird. Like, it's very hard. I mean, even now, as I try to staff editors, it's incredibly difficult to find people who aren't all about their own personal byline and their own personal pursuit of fame. Um, Which actually, that's interesting because, you know, you are a known entity when it comes to a lot of colleagues and even artists who just know who you are from over the years having met you or even having like argued with you. But, you know, you're not 
you're not like the Shane Smith of Vice. Like you're very much sort of behind the scenes and but and yet people know who to give credit to. And I was wondering like if you were like a byline thirst monster of the highest order and constantly wanting to throw floodlights on yourself, do you think you would have been able to successfully like sell the company like this? I mean, I mean, I think about that, frankly. Because have there has ever been a point over the years, because I get this sometimes where I'm like, people are like, you should do more TV or you should do more this or you should do more that. Did you ever have regrets that you didn't put yourself in the middle of everything before this happened? I do, but I mean, I, I, as you know, knowing me for almost 20 years, like I have my you own... take that back. I'm kidding. Go ahead. I have my own weird way of networking and going into a room and sort of working it that mm-hmm. is not does not involve making everybody look at me right um, and it's been very successful for me so I, I do feel like in the social media age there are times that like if I were a superstar editor um, it could have perhaps expedited um, certain parts of the business mm-hmm. um, but I also feel like uh, my approach has been consistently successful for me um, even if it is somewhat understated and, you know, quiet. Would you call it classy? I, I, I would like to think <laughs> there is. Um, so you've been writing a lot more lately and some of it's kind of like dad shit, like the 90 best rap albums of the 90s yes. or like defending hip hop writers in the age of social media or the day Kanye West killed gangster rap. Um, why did you start writing again? Well, one, Lauren Nostro would not stop haranguing me about it. But two, I... Part of it was that I, I am self-conscious about the fact that we live in a, in a moment where the hype cycle spins so quickly that people are fairly unaware of anything that happened prior to, like, the last time, you know, they looked at, at their phone. Right. Um, and I felt like I have done quite a bit in my career. Because you're old. Yes, because I'm old. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know what it is? Nick Schomberger. Um, oh, Lauren and Nick are all people that work. At, yes. Yeah. And, and Nick used to work at Complex. And on his last day, um, he and I sort of chatted and had a cup of coffee. And he was like, you need to let these kids know all of the things that you've done. Because they all quietly respect you. But and, they don't know why. But they don't really know why. Mm-hmm. And that was like, oh, so that story that I wrote in 2004, they haven't read that? I guess not. Right. And so I, I love that Sean Berger telling you makes you write more versus me where I'm like, you know, you should write more over the years for a very, very long time. No. So, you know, there are things that you contribute to the culture that people might not know about. And I think the the thing that you're talking about is the M Drake 50 cover. Yes. Right. Which, which was a huge watershed moment. That was the highest selling rap magazine in the history of rap magazines. And describe that moment. Um, it was... Eminem and uh, and XXL had had a very storied, uh, tempestuous relationship, yeah. um, which had started. I don't. I think they it had was just mired in. Yeah, they dissed him, but it was mired in all this other complicated shit with like the source and like there was a well, lot of bad blood. So then um, Elliot takes over, and Elliot was one of the members of Ego Trip and one of my mentors, yeah. um, and was trying to repair that relationship and he knew that I knew Paul, Eminem's manager. Um, Shady Camp. Was mm-hmm. friends with all of the Shady guys. Um, and we had done several rounds of outreach which were kind of 
tersely rebuffed. Um, <laughs> <Shat> upon. <laughs> and then out of the blue, Paul hit me up one day and asked if I could arrange a lunch with him and Elliot. Mm-hmm. And, and now Paul and Elliot are in business together. Yes, and now Paul and, Paul and Elliot have Rap Radar um, mm-hmm. and the Rap Radar podcast. Yes, they do. Um, and we sat and talked and basically Paul offered up uh, a cover that would be Eminem, Dr. Dre and 50 Cent. Right. Um, and then all of hip hop got a nosebleed because that was so intense. Yes. Yeah. You have to imagine this was like the zenith of hip hop as it crossed over into popular pop, culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and Elliot because I had sort of brokered this deal, was kind enough to give me that cover story. Um, so I flew out to LA. You were kind of built in. I feel like I, people trusted you the I, most to be in the middle of that story, let's I was, be honest. I was a little baked into the, yeah. to the offer, perhaps. <laughs> to the ingredients, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I flew out to LA uh, maybe two weeks later and went to the In the Club video shoot mm-hmm. um, and sat in a trailer and interviewed three... You know, rap, rap lords legends. yeah and it <laughs> was incredibly break- stressful yeah i remember the anxiety i was like i thought i was gonna throw up i was so stressed out because well you were also running mass appeal at the time i was i was editor you had your for mass own appeal. magazine and you were doing this like it was the most pressure-filled situation of your career up until that point and and i was getting 30 minutes from the beginning of like Fuck. the first question until it was done. And Dennis Dennehy was there from Interscope and mm-hmm. these guys were not really trying to stick around. Like, yeah. So it was like, Jesus. I'm going to go in and I have to just ask the 14 best questions that I can mm-hmm. and hope that these human quote machines will, you know, live up to my expectations and just say awesome, crazy stuff. Um, and they did. And it was you a know, huge cover. Yeah, they responded to all of the Ja Rule, Irv Gotti stuff, and it ended up being a total watershed moment for magazines, magazines team from, magazine, from, really, for media. Yeah. Um, so I have a, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. You're turning 37 in like a week and change. It's true. What? I mean, you're still, despite everything, you're still really young. Like, what are you going to do next? Uh, well, that's the thing. That's what's so exciting, honestly, about this deal um, is taking Complex to the next level with the funding um, that Verizon and Hearst can offer us. So you're going to space? Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Basically, yeah. Elon Musk shit. Um, <laughs> no, but it, we we have been um, fairly successful in video thus far, mm-hmm. um, running an incredibly efficient operation. Um, but we have run a very pragmatic and scrappy business. Um, And so to have the opportunity to make larger bets on more ambitious projects, um, to step into the scripted space, to step into, you know, documentary feature Mm -hmm. space. Um, When are you going to hire me to do a scripted show? We have to have a conversation when this is over. Lovely. You are in a unique position where you have staffed not only when you were at Massapleet, Mass Appeal, you hired a staff, but you hired a staff at Complex, and you hired a lot of your friends. Is that, isn't that like moving in with your best friend? Like, isn't that having like a friend as a roommate? Like, how, how has that worked out? And is that harder? It is. Um, and it's also, it's been a weird transition for me. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something I've, I've been thinking about a lot recently, because we, we sold the company, and Jack 
Irwin and Joe LaPuma are the only two members of the original core team mm -hmm. who are still um, working at Complex. I know they both are old men now. <laughs> yes, Everyone don't is. tell Joe that. Though. I will not. Um, Joe was a baby when I met him, so that's my only aside. But yeah, I mean, it was interesting because I became editor-in-chief at 26, mm -hmm. and I was the median age of the staff. Yeah. And I was also, to your point, very good friends with all of the people um, that I was working with, many of whom I had originally hired four years earlier at uh, Mass, Mass Appeal. Appeal. Um, but the thing was that it created like a really positive environment because... I think none of us wanted to let the ball drop because no one would want to disappoint one of their friends. Sure. Um, which made actually managing these people much easier than um, I think it could have been. But wasn't it kind of a lonely road? Because at the end of the day, you are the boss. And so you, you're put in a position where you shoulder the burden in a different way. And like in some regards, you can't actually you know, confide in your friends because they are relying on you and they have a certain set of expectations from you. Yeah, I mean... I would say that, that that period, although we all sort of look back on the transition to digital fondly mm -hmm. now uh, in 2008, 2009. Some of those sales, some of those fucking traffic golds were, were insane. It, it was a very difficult time because I was wrestling with keeping the families of my friends uh, fed in a, in a right. very real way and, you know, working very closely with Rich to, to keep the business afloat. Well, yeah, because that's the thing. Like, people are very la-di-da when you guys had year-over-year -year growth. But 2008, 2009, that was a bloodbath. And you did grow your company and kept the lights on and kept your friends hired. Like, I remember I was copy editing for you freelance because I lost my job. And this was before I worked for you in the fashion department. And like, so yeah, you definitely like fed a lot of people during that time. And in hindsight, now that we're all like, great, and you sold your company after all these years, it's like, you must be fucking exhausted. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a long time. And, and to, to, <laughs> to get back to your question about whether, whether or not I slept the night before, I mean, in, in the fall of 2008, we had a deal on the table to sell to actually the same private equity people who a year later would purchase the company. Okay. Um, we had an, a letter of intent in, pl in place. Okay. Um, and then Lehman fell apart and they rescinded the offer. And, you know... So the subprime mortgage crisis made it so that you couldn't sell your company? Yes. During the time where you needed to desperately? Yes. And we ended up you know, I mean, I remember I was out to dinner with Rich um, and we were uh, sitting with, I think, this guy, David Lipke from like Women's Wear Daily or, or, or one of those uh, trade. Cool. Yeah. And Rich just like gets up, goes outside and then asks me, sticks his head back into the restaurant, asks me to walk out. And I was step Rich's out. forehead vein like popping out of his face? I've never seen someone yell fuck so loud. Also, he yells fuck a lot. So yes. <laughs> to say that. And there was just this moment of this thing, this might, the wheels might come off. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we spent the next four months basically figuring out what the next steps were going to be. Um, and then the great part was that 12 months later, we actually continued to be profitable despite Everything. the worst economic mm -hmm. downturn in the history of publishing. Um, and the same private equity people came back to the table and ended up 
purchasing the company. Um, so you but, had a lot of hardship well, on the road. I, I say that to say, like, as we approach this deal with Hearst and Verizon, you know, part of you feels like, okay, this is destiny. I've been working so hard for this for a decade. It's going to happen. And then the other part of you is like, this could all fall apart for something that has not, you know, nothing to something do with could, you. Yeah. You, you look at what has happened in Paris or, you know, yeah, like, true. there are so many things that can send the world into a tailspin. Right. Um, and it's absolutely frightening. So until the ink is dry, um, it is absolutely nerve wracking and you don't know if you're going to end up with this, Mm-hmm. you know, the sort of happily ever after. Right. Well, we'll all still be your friend, even when you're less rich than you are now. Um, do you think mentors are important? We mentioned Elliot, and I know that Sasha Jenkins, who was also a part of Ego Trip, is a mentor of yours. Do you think they're important? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I give all credit to those guys for who really... Else? Sasha, Elliot, Chairman Mao, Gabe Alvarez, and Brent Rollins. So um, all of Ego Trip. All of Ego Trip. They... When I was 17 years old, um, they allowed me to be the sixth man off the bench for their um, publication. And I learned everything about writing and publishing and art direction from them. Um, And, you know, I mean, I still see echoes of the things that they taught me in the stuff that I am writing today. Yeah. I mean, they also, it's so funny that particular team and I'm so selfish that I want them to make a ton more things in the future, but they all have different tastes and they all brought different things to the table. And so it is accurate, I think, to see, you know, some of like Brent Rollins' eye in something or like Sasha Jenkins' taste in something or Elliot's sort of like fervor and his passion and like his competitiveness in other things. Um, What do I do if I want you to become my mentor? Like, how do you like to be approached? And or do those emails of like, hey, can we get coffee even like work for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I try to engage um, the younger people on the staff and, and try to make myself available. Um, Are they scared of you? It's, well, that's, this gets back to the other thing. Like, it's, it is weird because I now, I have 150 people that report it into my departments. And I have those two guys from my original core team and everyone else. Some of them have been around four or five years and they seem new to me still. Um, right. You're like, are you the intern? He's like, no. <laughs> yeah. And I've, and I have gone from being the median age of the staff to being 10 years older, the old man. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of enthused and excited by that at the same time, because I do feel like when you find the right, uh, engaged young people, they have an energy and an excitement about them. Mm-hmm. Um, that, like I said, talking to Lauren made me want to write more. Yeah. Do you still like your job? Yeah, I love it. Really? It's, I mean, I get to tell stories about the things that are interesting. I, I mean, how do you stay interested though? That's the other thing about you. Like, I mean, you and I are similar in that we still give a shit about the young people shit that we give a shit about, but like, how, how do you maintain it? I mean, I, I will say this, having had a child has made, uh, staying up on everything a little bit i mean it's it's become work really um just because you have so much less time i can't just dick around on the internet looking for soundcloud songs that may or may not be interesting i sort of have to have that curated for me at a time Mm -hmm. um but i still 
I mean, I just like telling, like, I'm excited for us to make this Rob Liefeld doc. Like, that's that, exciting. Also, like, that, I love Deadpool. How did you think about it? I, I thought it was great. Yeah. I they did an, I love an amazing the job. Easter eggs. I love, like, all of the little things in it. No, it was, it was phenomenal. And, but again, it, it's, what's interesting and exciting is where before I would sort of have to roll up my sleeves to actually go do this. Mm-hmm. I now can, like, send an email to right. my pop culture team and say, hey, when Deadpool comes out, you guys should talk to this guy, Rob Liefeld. He's the creator of it. And three weeks later, I get to read an awesome Deadpool story. So you wave your scepter around. Yes. <laughs> and, and then two months after that, I have people, you know, my video team hitting me from set with you know, selfies with Rob. That's being so like, nice. Oh, he just talked to us for four hours. It was incredible. Blah, 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 blah. And I look forward to sitting in the editing suite and like going through the tape with them and putting together what will hopefully be um, one of the better or best documentary features about him. Totally. Um, Are you going to take a vacation? Yes, me and the wife are going to Maui uh, in May, May 7th. Nice, right after your birthday. Um, Are you going to ever write a comic book or do any of these other things that I know that you've been wanting to do your entire life? Yes, um... I'm absolutely, well, that's one of the things that I'm super, super, like, people ask how I've not gotten bored um, doing this, and it's because every two to three years, my entire job has changed. Like, I had to learn how the internet works, and then I had to learn how video on the internet works. New-shaped problem to solve. And so now I'm figuring out how, you know, I spent an hour and a half on the phone with our friend Carter Harris, figuring out how scripted television television works. Wonderful television writer, yeah. Yes. figuring out the nuances between WME and CAA and how one could take a kernel of an idea to uh, a pilot. Um, So basically all you have to do is consistently stay inquisitive and intellectually curious. Yes. Intellectual curiosity is, I think, uh, paramount to my success Mm -hmm. and something that I look for in trying to find um the new guard yes potential mentees um (laughs) or apprentices um Mm -hmm. i'm i'm constantly looking for new people who are excited and also willing to roll up their sleeves and not focus so much on the now and the and themselves yes yeah um it's the mr miyagi thing it's like it'll come you just have to (laughs) meanwhile who the fuck is mr miyagi (laughs) yeah they're like, wait, is that in the Jaden Smith movie? Yeah, totally. Ew, ew, ew. <laughs> Gross. Okay. Say it's your Oscar speech. And then giving you a little statue. And you yes. get to go up on a podium because this is a big moment for you. Yep. And you're so grateful that you're so rich. Who do you want to thank? Uh, I think my, my mom and my dad. Um, no, I mean, because I, I think that I... As much as I owe a debt to the ego trip guys, I, I think that my parents really, I am the sum of their their parts. And I think my father's uh, willingness, I mean, his, his interest in making games and telling stories through um, gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, Shout out to Ed Bever. Yeah. Really showed me, like, I, I never considered not having a creative job. Despite all the risks. There, I didn't even think about it because that's just, if 
making things is the coolest thing that you could ever do. And I got to see my dad do it. And my dad was never like super duper successful, but he supported himself and his family. Also super happy the whole and time. Exactly. Because my dad never cared about the money at all. Mm. He cared about the projects. As long as he could get to the next project, it was cool. Um, and then on the flip side, I had my mom who was working on Wall Street as a pawn trader. Um, Shout out to Maureen. <laughs> yes. Um, and that, I think, showed me what success could look like. Mm. Um, and and a, a sort of a path to it. Um, yeah, unpack what it means, like, what success could look like. I mean, she, you know, she was a, a woman on Wall Street in 1985, um, being extremely outspoken and brash and not giving a single fuck about any of the impediments that were yeah you know. she stays searching for fucks to give your mom no she's she's she is uh, all out um but again and i could see from watching both of them their strengths and also their weaknesses and i think that that is the most analytical you thing to say <laughs> no i, I mean because i could see where my mom's yeah. brashness got in her own way um and i could see where my dad's uh lack of commercial ambition um sort of hindered his products mm -hmm. um and i totally respected both of them in the way that they went about it because there was both had this incredible integrity yeah that's um, true because my mom would rather have an impediment and be who the fuck she is the whole way. And my dad would rather make the exact game that he wants, even if it means that most people don't really want to play it. For that core group, it'll be perfect. Right. Um, and I kind of was able to be like, oh, if I take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and that's what complex is. Right. That's beautiful, man. I think that... No, it's really great. Like, I feel like we hear so many stories about, like, people exiting and selling companies and da-da-da, and it feels like such a headline, but this is nice. I feel like you fucking worked your face off. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, so did a lot of other people. Yeah. And it is, it's gratifying, um, you know, financially. It, it's gratifying as a competitive person yeah. who has looked at all Do of the editors. Do you feel like you won? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I feel like, I, and I feel like... I, I've set the stage where I have an opportunity now to win on a much bigger level. Yes, you're just um, going to win it all. All I do is win. <laughs> um, no, so that's, that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, it, means, it means a lot coming from you. And thanks for doing my podcast. This is fun. Yeah, I had a great time. All right. Thank you. Bye. I'm in love with my life.